From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Afghan refugees who came to Colorado after the withdrawal face a deadline if they want to stay. Then, a private investigator on a landmark sexual assault case opens up in a new book. Erica Krauss says people opened up to her as a PI because of her face. If you have a certain kind of face, you look like everyone's third grade best friend. You know, you look like someone someone used to know, someone used to be comfortable with. People tend to open up to you more, and sometimes strangers will do it. That happened to me really my whole life. How the case she worked on expanded the scope of Title IX. Another chance to turn the page with us. Plus, the challenge of creating a way around Glenwood Canyon without making it too inviting to drive. Hi, I'm Jasmine Liddington, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. My car got hit, and ultimately it was totaled. When I realized that the car wasn't going to be fixed or covered, I just decided that what would be a higher purpose for this car, as opposed to parting it out for small amounts of money myself or just getting rid of it, the best decision was to donate it to an organization that I appreciate. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. For Afghans who came to Colorado after the U.S. withdrawal, the clock is ticking. Many face a deadline this month to file for asylum. Denverite's Kevin Beatty found some volunteers who are trying to help. Hi, Tanya. How are you? Uh, you know. <laughs> is this like the first one all over again? We had a lot of cancellation. On a recent Saturday morning in a mosque north of Denver, Tracy Harper is trying to keep a legal clinic on track. The catch is, this clinic is very makeshift. <laughs> Can't do this without a sense of humor. Or you would go mad. There are 25 families here from Afghanistan. Each fled their home country after the Taliban took over last fall. Now they're racing the clock to apply for the chance to stay here legally. They have to file for asylum within one year of arriving, a deadline that is quickly approaching for many. Have you or your family members ever been accused, charged, arrested, detained, ever experienced threats in the past by anyone? Do you fear harm or mistreatment if you return to your home country? More than 70,000 Afghans came to the U.S. since Western militaries pulled out of the country. More than half must answer questions like these to obtain legal residency. This includes about 1,000 people in Colorado. Are you afraid of being subjected to torture in your home country or any other country? Applying for asylum is complicated and delicate. And one thing is clear. There are more refugees than there are attorneys who can help get paperwork in order. So Harper is running ad hoc clinics like this. Okay, so this stuff needs to just get sort of distributed. Okay. Here you go. She's got over 100 volunteers on hand, most who are not immigration lawyers, who help the families fill out forms and prepare them for interviews with federal officials. The work is crucial and fast, and Harper says it often keeps her up at night. I think the chaos is definitely affecting my mental state. The hardest thing is the emotional toll of having so many people relying on my success. If I am not able to pull this off, there isn't anyone else to step into my shoes. Abdul Basir Muhedi is one of the Afghans whose family is coming up on its one-year filing deadline. He and his wife are Hazaras, an ethnic group persecuted by the Taliban. As they rush to leave Afghanistan, militants stop them outside the airport in Kabul. Mohedi says he stepped in between the men and his wife, who was pregnant. So finally did 
Talib started beating me, and they beat me very badly. He survived that encounter, and they were able to push through the crowds and then convince some guards to let them board a plane. They share that kind of trauma and fear with so many others hoping for legal status. We're positive. We think that our case will be approved. But if it is not approved, they try to send us back to our country. We don't have any place to live there. Mohedi has also volunteered his time at the makeshift legal clinic near Denver, helping other refugees with translation while they work on their own asylum applications. When I heard that this organization needs volunteer interpreter, I said, I'm ready. Because I know if we don't put hand together, it will take a long time. The federal government has provided little support for everyone who needs asylum. So workshops like Harper's have popped up across the country as nonprofits and refugee advocates try to fill that void. It shouldn't be my responsibility. Somebody else should have done this. I expected the U.S. to do more. Fortunately, Harper has volunteers backing her up. The nonprofit Colorado Lawyers Committee has mustered dozens of tax and business attorneys, plus some students, to help with these clinics. Hi there. Hello. How are you? What's your name? Pornama. People like Pornama Ramesh, an undergrad at the University of Colorado Boulder, say they feel a deep responsibility to help. My family are immigrants, and knowing that a lot of immigrants face a lot of hurdles throughout the process, and the U.S. government doesn't really do a lot to mitigate those hurdles, being able to help with that is something that I'm, like, very passionate about. At this mosque in North Glen, 25 tables are set up inside two different prayer rooms. It's like speed dating for asylum. Volunteers ask questions and help as many people at once as possible. When the paperwork is complete, Harper checks everything before it's submitted. We're going to do our best, but we're probably not going to get to everybody. We need everyone's help in soothing that anxiety. Harper says deportation back to Afghanistan is unlikely, but some refugees could become perpetually undocumented if they miss their window for asylum. So time is of the essence, and there's still a lot of people who need help. I'm Kevin Beatty, Denverite. If I say Title IX, you might picture a locker room, whether male and female college athletes have commensurate facilities, equipment. But a landmark case in Boulder in the early 2000s helped expand the federal law to protect women from sexual assault on campus. A culture of impunity at CU Boulder meant football players got away with rape and other crimes. Well, 20 years later, a private investigator on the case has written a book, Tell Me Everything by Erica Krauss dwells somewhere between true crime and memoir. That's because it's also an account of Krauss's own experience with sexual abuse, which began when she was four and lasted throughout her childhood. Tell Me Everything, while sometimes painful to read, is also a fascinating study of human behavior and resilience. I spoke with Krauss in June. Erica, welcome to Turn the Page, our reading circle. Thank you so much for having me. We are joined by an audience of readers gathered at Lit Fest in Denver. And a note that this conversation includes frank discussion of sexual violence. Uh, you became a private investigator after a chance encounter. More on that in a moment. But you were quickly assigned to this landmark sexual assault case involving Title IX. Uh, help us understand a bit more why it was such a watershed. 
Well, at that point, Title IX hadn't really been used in this way. It had only been used for like jerseys and facilities and um, whether people were getting the same amount of money in their sports, if, whether they be female or male. It was not at all associated with sexual assault when we began this case. So this was the very first Title IX sexual assault case in history. And part of the battle was just proving that we could use Title IX in this way. What did you have to prove under Title IX? We had to prove a culture of violence, a culture of sexual violence and discrimination and harassment against women um, in the sports world. That meant, you know, if athletes were harassing women, if they were sexually assaulting women. And the reason this fell under Title IX is that many college athletes are funded through scholarship and the university themselves is funded by the federal government. So that's why it, it fell under um, a civil rights initiative. And a federal law in particular. Was the argument that men did not face that kind of culture, that kind of uh, threat, and that because women did, that was unequal? Is that an okay way to put it? That was part of it. Also another part of it was that women were, and I'm just quoting one of the, a DA here, but women were seen to be used as bait to bring college athletes here, sexual bait to um, bring college athletes to the school and that put them in situations of sexual violence. And I don't mean at all to imply that men aren't victims of sexual assault, because they certainly are. You became a private investigator, as I said, after a chance encounter. The first line of your book is, it was because of my face. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, you have that face too, right? <laughs> what face? Tell me. It's the tell me face. It's the tell me everything face. It, it really, I mean, I'm not saying that you look innocuous. You don't. You, you have wonderful glasses. But, um, but <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that if you have a certain kind of face, you look like everyone's third grade best friend. You know, you look like someone someone used to know, someone used to be comfortable with. People tend to open up to you more, and sometimes strangers will do it. Uh, that happened to me really my whole life. Your whole life, strangers would come up to you, and you write that they would tell you deeply personal things without knowing a lick about you. Inappropriate things, too, especially when I was a kid. I'd be like, I don't know what this means that you're telling me, but they would still do it, yeah. And you had this interaction with an attorney who, I guess, confided in you, and this is how you become a private investigator, a chance encounter at a bookstore. Yeah, he, he did what people tend to do, which is, you know, started telling me personal things, and then he got very upset because he's, he's a very private person. I didn't know that at the time, so he's telling me all this stuff, and then he, he was like, what's happening to me? And I said, don't worry, you know, this happens to me all the time, and he said, it doesn't happen to me. And then he, like many astute businessmen, saw a way to use this in his practice, and he hired me on the spot as a PI. Wow. As you say, because of your face. <laughs> so he thought about this. He thought, this is someone people open up to. I can use that. Right. Do you have to be licensed in Colorado to be a private investigator? Now you do, but back then you didn't. So I just jumped in as a rookie. I had no idea what I was doing. There aren't really books that are accurate about being a PI. There are lots of fiction books where, you know, 
apparently you're supposed to go around looking for matchbooks and whatever Sherlock Holmes did, but um, <laughs> that's that's not really what the, the job is. So I had to learn the job on, on the go. What is the job? It's really doing what you're doing right now. It's talking to people, it's getting them to open up, it's getting them to feel comfortable. Um, the only difference is I did it with a lot of alcohol and a lot of food and I just throw these things at someone and they would, it was a, it was a tool. Is it ethical to give people alcohol <laughs> and, and ex, you know, expect them to open up? Is that an ethical behavior? No, and the job, <laughs> the job is not really an ethical job and it's never been considered to be an ethical job, really. I mean, if you read books about it, um, PIs usually traverse that line between what you're doing for the good of a cause and what you're doing, you know, all the ethical violations that you're committing to do it. And who were you trying to get to open up? It was across the whole range. So I talked to uh, people who I thought were witnesses to the initial assault, and then it became bigger. The case started growing as more and more people started coming forward and saying, well, this happened to me too. And I say coming forward, we had to do a lot of convincing for that. So I would talk to witnesses, I'd talk to sometimes sexual assault victims, I talked to uh, sex workers, because the university hired sex workers to um, entice the recruits to come to the school. I talked to players. Uh, I... Oh, I'm pausing you there. <laughs> why? <laughs> why, oh why? The school <laughs> hired sex workers as lures to recruits? I, you know, I shouldn't say the school did it. I should say that individuals who worked for the school did it because we had trouble tying that all the way up the chain to the coaches. But yeah, recruiters, uh, one recruiter in particular underwent a grand jury over this and hired sex workers. Uh, he said he only hired them for himself, but one of the, our witnesses uh, she was a madam, and she provided a lot of sex workers for recruits. And I think it's really important to remember that a lot of these recruits were 16 and 17 years old. Now, you will hear me say, see you, Boulder. And I will say names associated with the event. Mm. Uh, I'm not going to be naming victims, but the point is, I'm being specific. You are not in the book. In fact, most of the names have been changed. You do say this takes place, I think you might even invoke the Flatirons, so we know that it's in the Boulder area. Why are you vague about this in the book? So there's some people I'm vague about because, you know, many, many, many people were involved in this case, and some of them were innocent, and some of them were, were survivors, and some of them were guilty, and they were abusers. And of course, there's the school who in my view, perpetuated everything. So, but I had to keep everybody nameless except for two, I think I named two public figures like Neil Gorsuch and Ken Salazar. Um, but other than that, everybody else who was involved in the case has an alias because I didn't want to inadvertently out someone. When I was a PI, if I got a name, I would inevitably get five more names from that one name because that's how we interact. We're in association with each other. Oh, so revealing one name is potentially revealing 10. Exactly. And maybe one of those 10 wouldn't mind, but the other nine would very much. And I wouldn't want to compromise their privacy in any way. When you began writing this book, did you know that it would include your own story of childhood sexual abuse? 
I tried to avoid it. I did not want to write about myself at all. I'm a fiction writer. I don't write about myself. I, I don't usually even talk about this stuff, even with close friends. But then I, as I was writing and I was describing what these incredible people went through, everything they risked, they risked their safety, they risked their futures, they risked their privacy, their education, certainly, um, to come forward. And I was thinking, well, okay, I'm going to write about them. What would give me any credence to write about them if I'm not willing to have the courage to write about myself? That I felt like for me to have the integrity to tell this story, I needed to also explain why this story was personal to me and why I cared about it so much. You don't name your abuser. He's called X in the book. Tell us about that decision. I went back and forth with that, you know. I, I really, again, I have that like kind of whistleblower personality, so I really want to call everyone out. Um, but, you know, I thought about it a lot, and, and one of the things that came down to was, this is my book about my life, this is my memoir, and do I really want him named in it? I don't think he deserves a name. He's living? Yes, yeah. He doesn't deserve that space in your story. That was part of it. Yeah. And another thing is that, you know, my story isn't, sadly, it's not unique. I mean, if I look around, even in this room, you know, one third of the women here have some kind of story that's similar. So naming him X in some ways felt truer because he could be anybody. Not you, not you. <laughs> but like, you know, he, and no one here. But um, he could be, a, <laughs> he could be a lot of different people. So, uh you know, to isolate and to even to give him a name felt like it would make him a little too specific. Although, of course, for me, he was incredibly specific. Do you hope he reads the book? And this is my last question about him. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I, don't, I have no idea how to answer that. Hmm. I, I didn't. You know, I, I wrote it for me, and hmm. I wrote it for people who. I, I wrote it for everyone who wants to read it, really, but I wrote it also for, um, particularly for people who might need to read it for whatever reason of their own. He doesn't figure into that. Well, I'd like to have you read a passage from the book. It's a window both into your childhood, but also a window into your talent as a writer. Thank you for saying that. It's so nice. Okay. Um, ever since I was four, when I got too angry or overwhelmed, I became disoriented with whirling, not in my head, but in the center of my chest, right where my heart should be. The feeling started soon after X targeted me, and it never went away, although I could ignore it most of the time. Throughout my childhood, the whirling increased with any strong feeling, angry or sad or scared, when my mother talked to me, when I went outside, when I was stuck inside, evenings and nighttimes when I was completely trapped. The eddying churned my insides, made me feel like my skin would split and I would spill out. It sometimes accelerated into a downhill, runaway feeling, like I couldn't get my legs under me, the sensation of running and contorting and falling. I couldn't figure out what to call it, this feeling, until I visited my friend's house when I was about five. In her powder pink bedroom, she had a glass cage with a fuzzy gray pet rat inside, hunched over as if ashamed. It climbed onto a wheel using those strange fleshy feet that looked like four-fingered hands. The rat began running on the wheel until its fur streaked in long lines, tail high, the wheel whirring and slowing. The rat ran nowhere, tripping, gaining ground, and then losing it, gaining, losing, eyes fixed. 
The erratic pace of the wheel exactly matched the pace of the spinning inside me. I recognized it with my body. That was what I felt inside my chest, a rat running on a wheel until it lost its legs. My rage had a face and a furry body full of dirty things I would later learn to fear. Parasites, bacteria, viruses, excrement. These things were inside me, and so was that rat. Do you still have that feeling? No. Oh, no. Well, how do you think you got rid of it? R- writing the book. No, I, I'm serious. Like, I, I have this um, theory about when we write about a traumatic or difficult experience, you know, before we write about it, that experience, whenever we think of it or we, we're reminded of it, it, it exists in a certain place in our mind. But once we write about it, the experience of writing about it sort of takes precedence over the experience itself. We still have that experience, mm. but the fresher experience is the experience of working it out, of putting into words, to giving voice to the silence that we've been holding. You know, maybe the original experience is a passive, traumatic experience, but the writing is an active experience. You have agency. You can do something about it, and you can act in a positive way to make art out of something terrible, frankly. So, um, so for me, that was what you know, one of the things that did it. Also, the case really was when that, that feeling really, really died. There was a culture of silence in your childhood home, and, and frankly, even in your family today, just as there was a culture of silence and permissiveness at the University of Colorado. I mean, as a kid, you tried to speak up to your family about X abusing you, and it was largely swept under the rug. Is it too facile to suggest then that the Title IX case for you was about breaking a lifelong culture of silence? Oh yeah, definitely. And that's part of why... Definitely it is that case. It's not too facile to suggest that. (laughs) It's definitely not too facile at all. It definitely, that's what it was for me. It was the first time when I decided again to act instead of just passively you know, react. The central event in this book is a party in Boulder where there is a gang rape. Mm -hmm. And many of the women who came forward, uh, particularly around this party, who were sexually assaulted, faced retribution from the university, from the university's supporters, What forms did that backlash take? In some ways, the worst was from the football fans who said they were ruining football. They were ruining their sport. So some of them received death threats um, for coming forward. Uh, Also, there was a lot of fear just walking around campus. One of the plaintiffs asked to attend college anonymously or, you know, under an alias so she wouldn't face retribution and the university refused. So she ended up dropping out. And a lot of the people who who experienced sexual violence at the hands of these players, they were so afraid they either didn't come forward or they um, dropped out of school. And again, part of your job as a private investigator is to cajole the story out of some of these folks despite the enormous consequences of them speaking up at all. Right, right. It, it brought me a lot of um, mixed feelings because I believed in the case. I believed in what we were doing. I thought we could create change. On the other hand, we're 
were individuals going to be sacrificed to that change? I, I didn't know. And I felt responsible for everything that happened. On the subject of indignities that survivors face, you write that they often have to pay for their own rape kits. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, um, it's not covered under the law, you know. And another indignity um, was, I don't know if we're jumping the gun here talking about this, but when for a while the case was thrown out of court, and when it was thrown out of court, the plaintiff was ordered to pay all the university's legal bills. So not only did they at that point lose the case for a while, but they were suddenly responsible for many millions of dollars at a very young age. I'm fascinated by the techniques you developed as a PI, um, I think because I'm an interviewer. And so I want to spend a little time exploring that. First of all, you write, I learned to split witnesses into two types, yes and no. Explain that. So if I were to ask you a question, and I thought you were a no witness, I would say something like, uh, so you don't think the university's at fault for this? And you'd say no, because that would be your habit. You'd say no, and then you'd have to back up your no. And then I'd get some really good information from whatever you had to say, right? But if you were a yes witness, that would mean that you were more accommodating, you know? So I'd say, and I'd nod a lot, and I'd say, so you think the university's responsible for this situation? And you'd say, yes, I do. And and then you'd have to back up your, your yes. So you have to sort of cue it to the response you, you really are looking for. Oh, how do you determine if someone's a yes or a no person? They tell you right away. They tell you, they, you know, no, they'll, like, I mean, one conversation, you know, he picked up the phone. I said, will you talk to me? He said, nope, 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 nope. And then I knew. <laughs> We have a no witness. Yeah, I say so, and then I went from there to no. So you can't talk to me. You're not allowed to talk to me. And he'd say, I'm allowed to talk to you. You No, I'm not. No, you're wrong. You know. So then you just you just move it that way. (laughs) You're gonna do that now, aren't you? (laughs) No, 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 no. You also learned to pick up on subtle verbal and facial cues. Yeah. Give me an example in that arena. So, you know, it can be anything from a little micro-expression. Somebody says, oh yeah, I like them, and maybe their face kind of twitches up like that, and you say, oh, you don't like them. Mm. And they say, no, I don't like them, that's why, you know. Um, Or you're just always looking for internal conflict, so their body would display internal conflict. If they you know, nod their head when they're saying no, or they shake their head when they're saying yes. Things like that are pretty simple. But then there's also another thing that was, I found really interesting, which is that um, when you talk about somebody, it's called the chameleon effect. You take on their face, you take on their expressions, you take on their voice a little bit. So you actually imitate people that you're talking about as you talk about them. And um, it's a way you'll, you'll often see people do it when they're talking about like a spouse or like a partner and they'll suddenly sort of embody them a little bit. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You take on the persona of the person you're talking about. You also write that sometimes someone might start a sentence or maybe give you a name not intending to and they would give you the first syllable or the first letter. Sometimes they just make a little motion with their mouth. 
you know. Towards like, an S like, or something. Yeah, or a W is really easy to see. Um, I could guess a lot from a W. <laughs> um, or, you know, and sometimes they were they say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to say who that is, you know, um, but they'd sort of look like a coach when they said it, you know, so particular. So I'd study, I'd study these people's body language and on, you know, film or whatever to see how they talked in their posture and their body language to see if I could sometimes guess. And if I could guess, then, then people feel like, oh my God, she's reading my mind and then they feel like they can't hide and then they just tell you anything, yeah. What is it to be Erica Krause's friend? <laughs> no one drinks around me anymore, they refuse. Yeah, an encounter at a cocktail party. <laughs> Uh, no, it's, it, I, I want to stress, though, <laughs> that you could do this. Anyone can do this. Uh-huh. It's stuff that we all do. We're socialized to do it. You just have to pay attention, and, and it's all right there. These abilities, you write, don't come from being smart or good or even generally observant. They come from being broken. Right. Whoa. You just said any of us could do this, so I could, maybe we're all broken. Well, it's a room full of writers, so odds are... <laughs> Why would being broken make you good at reading subtle cues in people? So it's more a measure of your attention. Like, what are you paying attention? Most, most people who are really safe and secure in life and they walk around and they're really happy, they're not necessarily paying attention to danger, signs of, of conflict, signs of uh, peril. But if you have a background of tragedy, abuse, um, problems, you're kind of always looking. You're always kind of looking for something. You know, where, where's it going to come from? And that makes you more acutely aware of your environment. It can make you hypervigilant. I'm not saying it's healthy, is, you know, is, <laughs> is the truth of it, right? But it can sort of give you an extra set of skills. This really important Title IX case, it ended up settling. Why and what was the result of that settlement for the individual women and for the campus climate? So first it was thrown out, right? Yeah. And then it went to uh, the Tenth Circuit and a panel of judges overturned that decision to um, throw the case out and they said now it has to be heard. Now if a Title IX case is heard in the court, even if the plaintiff is awarded one dollar, just one dollar in damages, then the defendant has to pay all of their legal fees. So the stakes really went up after we knew, we all knew that the case was going to go to court and after the university knew that they were going to have to go to trial. And from there, they were more motivated to settle. So they did, they, um, they settled the case and the plaintiffs together were awarded $2,850,000. Uh, $2.5 million went to one plaintiff and $350,000 went to the other plaintiff. But in addition, the university was ordered to make very wide changes to their recruiting rules and had to appoint a then kind of not very common position of Title IX coordinator. Now most schools have them, many schools have them, Um, but back then it wasn't really a thing. And also there were changes across the board because this became a precedent. So other schools started making changes. NCAA changed their recruiting rules. There were changes across the board and more people started coming forward because 
this case had been won and now they could hold people accountable under Title IX. Now when you go forward as a, yay, right? <laughs> And when you go forward as a survivor of a crime and you go to the DA's office, that DA has control over whether or not that case is tried. They can say, no, I'm a football fan and I don't want to do this because of political reasons. Or they can have any reason in the world not to take the case. But when you have this Title IX sort of um, mode of, of suing, and then it's a civil rights case and it opens a whole other avenue for getting accountability for a crime, whereas you're, you're not as under the control of the DA's office. It is less up to the discretion of a sole person, I hear you saying. Yeah, and another thing that happened that was amazing was that it was a change in university culture. Before then, universities were not really considered to be accountable for the safety of their students. It was it was almost like, well, you made it here. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, right? Be good. Don't get into trouble. Good luck to you. But now, under Title IX, universities are responsible for the safety of their students. And it puts them in a role of accountability. And that meant they were many universities were more proactive in installing lights and regulating recruiting and um, making sure that things were above board and safe for all the students. Do you wish it had gone to trial? Well, the drama queen in me, certainly. <laughs> yeah, I really wanted to see, like, overruled, and I wanted to see it in, in real life. Um, but, you know, really what matters in the end is that everyone's safer. Do you think that the women in the case got justice? I can't speak for them. You know, I do know that they went through hell. And I do know that there were many people who were who were in the case who, as witnesses, they did not want to be plaintiffs in the case, who, who got nothing uh, but, you know, threats. So I, I can't speak to whether or not they got justice. I can only say that change was made, and I think that was the point. And I think a lot of the people who were involved with the case, that was their primary goal. They risked a lot to make change, and they succeeded. Rebecca Arno of Aurora asks, has the release of the book cracked open your relationship with your family or made it more difficult, if that's even possible, Rebecca says. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, I'm not in contact there, so it's, it, you know, it, I think things are still the same. There's a writer named Melissa Phoebos, and I remember her saying the way people act towards you before you write the book is about the same as the way they act towards you after you write the book. So that's kind of what you can expect from them, you know? So if someone kind of ignores you before, they're more likely to even ignore you after. Um, or if they're really aggressive to you before, they're likely to be aggressive afterward. So Is that a surprise to you? It is a little bit. Yeah, me too. But then I remind myself, so few people read. <laughs> do, people, do people even read it, you know? So, um, yeah. I don't mean to depress anybody <laughs> in the room. And it's, it's your life we're talking about, so it seems strange for me to invoke the notion of a spoiler, but in, in the book, there is an encounter uh, in this time with your mother, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. 
Um, there, there are also some very positive milestones that you explore in this book, including, at the time, a budding relationship that results in a marriage. Right. Um, lest people think that this is all, you know, gloom and doom. <laughs> yeah. It's actually really funny. I mean, <laughs> it's strange to say that about a book about sexual violence, but the case was so ridiculous. I mean, just some of the things that happened. I mean, the university president, when, when being told that the C word was, was used against one of the survivors, she said, well, that could be viewed as a term of endearment. Yeah. <laughs> just really ridiculous stuff like that. It, so the case itself provided all this comic relief um, in a way, which you would never ever think of a sexual assault case as doing. <laughs> Helen Carpenter of Denver uh, notes that Tell Me Everything, your book, has a few beautiful pages and paragraphs about Colorado weather. Uh, and of course, in Boulder, against the flat irons and the foothills, you feel that so closely. Uh, Helen asks, are you planning on writing more stories where nature is a more prominent character or part of the story? Thank you, Helen. Um, Helen, I just want to tell you, I really kind of suck at writing about nature and setting. It's not a strength of mine, and it's something I've had to deliberately work on. I've had to expressly work on setting for this, but I felt like the if I'm going to talk about a culture, if I'm going to talk about a university culture, a state culture, a sport culture, you have to also build that world. And I found a lot of parallels. I mean, there were a lot of fires at that time. There are fires now. <laughs> there. Um, there were a lot of, you know, natural disasters that were happening that sort of mimicked the in, my internal natural disasters as well. So I'm going to still try, Helen. That's, but that's just between you and me, Helen. Uh-huh. <laughs> Here's a remarkable comment. This is from Jacqueline St. Joan in Denver. Uh, she has a comment based on her own experience as one of the commissioners appointed 20 years ago by the CU Regents to investigate and hold hearings on these incidents of violence against women through the football program, uh, quoting her. So I learn about this, but so many people never learned in a coherent way just what went on within the football recruiting program and the money that was at stake due to the team's symbolic meaning to the alumni. Now, Jacqueline says, thanks to Erica, there's a written record that people want to read because of her sensitivity, way with words that clarifies the shame of all that occurred. Mm, Thank you. That's so nice. There was a lot of money involved. Boosters and you know, endorsements and, uh, you know, college sports is a huge money-making endeavor. Uh, It brings money not just to the sport itself, but to the other sports and also to the college itself. So it was a place of schmoozing for many people. And that's why they built that giant (laughs) Coliseum-esque stadium, you know, to have this sort of luxurious environment in which to get more money. Jordan Jefferson of Denver reflects a bit on the humor in this question. Some sections of your book, Jordan says, are quite darkly funny. How do you approach including humor in this incredibly serious story? I don't know if I approached it. I I think humor is a coping mechanism. And I think 
that's something our minds often do. When things are so ridiculous, we see the ridiculousness of it and we try and we laugh. Because it, and that is um, why sometimes when faced with violence, people laugh. A lot, there are a lot of, for example, uh, survivors of sexual assault who have lost their cases because after they were attacked, they were laughing because they couldn't believe that this happened to them. It was just so surreal. Uh, but it, I think it's something that happens, responding with humor to perceived danger, to pain, to many things. Daniel Bedell, I hope, is invoking humor in this next question. Daniel's in Golden. Erica, you talk a lot about martial arts training. You're, you're a black belt, is that yes. right? Yes, yeah. yeah. Explain how you would attack or beat Ryan in a fight. I would never fight Ryan. You, you would unless win. Unless he provoked me. And then I would totally beat Ryan. I like to battle with my mind rather than. <laughs> Do you think that the martial arts training was about taking back power? Definitely. And it, but it, it kind of went a little bit beyond that for me, too. I really like the strategy of it. And there's a point with martial arts where you, you sort of know enough to de defend yourself in most circumstances. Now, you can't control everything. You can't control really anything. And um, size does matter. And I, I don't want to say that you'll ever be you know, safe, really, if just from knowing a few things. But there's a point where, uh, with martial arts, you start feeling the other person out. And you start sort of communicating in this physical way. And I think it really was part of the other piece with the PI work where I, you know, I wanted to read people's bodies. I wanted to read how how people presented themselves and be able to vibe them a little bit. So I think that was, that was definitely a piece of it. Erica Krause, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. This is so much fun. Thank you. Author Erica Krause speaking with me at LitFest in Denver. We read her new book, Tell Me Everything, for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. And we have our next pick for Turn the Page. It's the latest from nature and adventure writer Craig Childs. He contemplates the beauty and meaning of rock art in this new book. Tracing Time celebrates the ancient communication on the caves, canyons, and cliffs of the Colorado Plateau. Child's conversations with elders, scholars, and friends are interwoven with the observations of his own brilliant mind. Pick up a copy of Tracing Time and join us September 6th in Grand Junction. Details at cpr.org slash turn the page. Again, the book is Tracing Time by nature and adventure author Craig Childs. Be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado's Front Range. Just where does it start and end? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks for the best sound? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Mudslides have made travel on Interstate 70 through Glenwood Canyon a dicey proposition in recent years. Officials are planning to upgrade a nearby detour, but they don't want the road to be too inviting. 
CPR's Nathaniel Miner explains. It's a beautiful summer afternoon, and I'm on my way to Glenwood Springs on Interstate 70. Everything was going just fine. Um, And then I got into Glenwood Canyon, and now we're doing about six miles an hour. I was stuck only for a few minutes as crews cleared old debris. But this highway has closed a lot in the last two years since the Grizzly Creek fire. Rocks and mud slide down the burn scar when it rains. One bad storm last year closed the highway for weeks. And this is a particularly bad spot for the highway to close. Glenwood Canyon is a pinch point for people traveling across the state, between the Vale Valley on the east and Glenwood Springs and the Roaring Fork Valley on the west. I-70 is the only quick way through. The official detour route around the canyon takes at least half a day. But there is another unofficial and increasingly popular detour that can be a whole lot faster. Pull it down and move on down the ditch. Rancher Josh Wood is slopping through a soggy pasture. We're less than 10 miles south of Glenwood Canyon, but we're in a valley thousands of feet higher. We're just flood irrigating on the from the ditch. Right now we're just doing it the old style and Running it out of the ditch onto the field. Wood is a 40-something with a long black and gray beard. Right next to us is Cottonwood Pass, which historically has been a quiet, bumpy road used by ranchers and other locals. It connects the Vale Valley to the Roaring Fork and can shave hours off the official detour. Not a whole lot of people knew about it. A lot of the construction workers, you know, that worked in both valleys knew about it, but it wasn't out like it is now. Now, the secret is way out. During Glenwood Canyon's first extensive shutdown in 2020, navigation apps like Google Maps started sending drivers up this narrow dirt road. What did the road there look like? Oh, just just steady cars. I mean, if you feel like you're, you know, putting on some kind of show sometimes because it's a, there's a parade going past. That's what I call it is the Cottonwood Parade. It got so bad that the state brought in the National Guard to direct traffic. The road went from handling 200 cars a day to 200 cars an hour. And it's not built for that. It's so narrow in some places that cars have to take turns passing. Some politicians have pressured the state to upgrade Cottonwood Pass as quickly as possible to make it a highway. Many local leaders and residents do not like that idea. They think a better road will lead to more traffic and will make this quiet part of the state a lot louder. And for a long time, some have resisted any improvements to the road. But that is starting to change. Jim Hancock is the assistant town manager in Gypsum on the east side of Glenwood Canyon. We recognize there's a lot of commuting that goes on between our two counties. I live in Newcastle. I make the trip. And so, you know, Cottonwood Pass is a very good alternative to a five-hour drive. So local governments in the state want to improve this unofficial detour just a little bit. Things like straightening curves and widening bottlenecks to make it safer. They want it to be an option, especially for local commuters, but not a highway. They're collecting public feedback now before they finalize the plan and start looking for funding. 
In the meantime, the state's bigger focus is to keep I-70 through Glenwood Canyon open as much as possible. Karen Bertolet with the State Department of Transportation says they're doing that by pulling down loose rocks and revegetating the canyon walls. And what we're finding is that it is working. Um, we're getting storms of the same intensity that we had last year. We're getting those this year, and we're not getting the mudslides. So the improvements we're making are helping to create a more resilient highway. Any improvements to Cottonwood Pass are still likely years away. So if you find yourself stuck in I-70 Canyon traffic anytime soon, think real hard before you join the Cottonwood Parade. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. And that is Colorado Matters for today. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. 